I know you're called Weather Report. Hear me out. Right. You're called Weather Report, right? Am I right? Is that the mm-hmm. name? Yep. Weather okay. Report. All the I'm way. I'm thinking of going direct at it. I'm thinking storms. All right. Storms over a city. Yes. Yes. I'm thinking more. I'm yes. thinking falling leaves. Okay. Strong storms associated yep. with weather. weather. Okay. And the coup yeah. de gras. Yeah. A fedora. <laughs> <laughs> Hello and welcome to another episode of 1001 Album Complaints. It's the show where longtime friends and musicians get together to discuss a randomly selected album from Robert Dimery's book, 1001 Albums You Must Hear Before You Die. Each week we take a new album, we we give it a bit of a deep dive, and then come together at the end to let you know if we think you actually need to listen to this album before you die. Before we get started, I just want to give you a heads up. If you like what we're doing, if you're into this, even if you're not, we'll take a bad review. That's fine. <laughs> There's no such thing as bad publicity, right? Of course. <laughs> so, but no, if, if you're digging this, uh, please give us a, a like, a subscribe, a review, tell a friend. It helps us uh, make this content easier to find in the various platforms. So we would really appreciate that. This week... We're taking on, I think this is a new genre for us, right? The jazz fusion. Oh, yeah. I don't yep. know that we've done it. We've, we've dipped our toes know, in the yeah, jazz waters a little bit, but jazz fusion, I yeah. think, think we're going to... Uh, not like this. Not like right. this. No. This is all in. <laughs> <laughs> we've definitely not tackled anything quite like this. So I think you guys are going to have to check me on this. We are listening to an album called Heavy Weather by probably the preeminent jazz fusion band called Weather Report. What fusion means exactly, we'll kind of get into that a little bit. And I'm going to need you guys to kind of check me a little bit on this episode because this album features someone who, you know, many people consider to be like the best bass player of all time, being Jocko Pistorius. This is not a Jocko album, so feel free to rein me in on some of that stuff. But without further ado, let's jump right in. We'll give you a sense for what we've been listening to this week. We'll start off with the opening track called Birdland. fellas let's go around the room and uh, we'll introduce our esteemed panel this evening by way of a brief tweet length introduction so i'm phil 
kicking it off this week, longtime friend of Alan's. And, <laughs> Sorry uh, to hear that. Yeah, it's really, dude. It's been on. It's been, it's been, it's been all right. It's been a ride. So my tweet length review of uh, Weather Report's heavy weather is not for Kenny Chesney fans. <laughs> Accurate. True story. <laughs> okay. This is Rob, and I crafted my tweet length review of heavy weather as if I was pitching the album to a would-be listener on the street. Okay, picture this. An Austrian synth wizard teams up <laughs> with the soprano sax from Steely Dan for a 70s jazz fusion album. Oh, oh, and I forgot to mention, the bass actually takes most of the solos. Wait, wait, why, why are you walking away? <laughs> And the bass player is even weirder than the other two guys. <laughs> All right. Hey, this is Adam over at the Big Board with your Action 1001 weather report. This week's forecast calls for 0% chance of lyrics, scattered boredom overnight. But currently it feels like 1977 and we can expect some fusion into the early morning. Now to sports. <laughs> Back to you in the studio. That was actually a, a, a lot of information packed into a, a, a clever little riff there. So this is Alan, and my take on this album is I, I don't love spinach. I've always hated it. I think it's kind of unpalatable, but I do eat it every now and again because I know it's good for you, and I still don't love it, but I will probably continue to eat it regularly for, for the rest of my life just for my own sustenance. And... uh this album is musical spinach to me. Forcing your children to sit down and listen to it <laughs> after dinner. Listen you to are not weather. leaving until you get through <laughs> this album. Uh, awesome. Cool. Well, sounds like uh, we've got a few varied opinions here, which I, which I think will take us to a nice place. So a little bit about this album. So the album was released in 1977. It was the, the seventh studio album from this group Weather Report. And as, as I mentioned earlier, they were most people or many people, I should say, consider them to be, you know, sort of the, the the preeminent jazz fusion band from this era. Before we get into the band too much, we should probably talk about like what jazz fusion actually is. Like, I'm curious, like what what does that mean to you guys? Like when you think of jazz fusion, what what kind of comes to mind? I sort of think of like a jazz band or a rock band rather hitting jazz changes. Lots of long solos, complicated chords, not a pop song. That definitely not a pop song. I had been thinking of it specifically as jazz fused with one of a small handful of other genres, which might be classical music or progressive music, which I think has some overlap, and taking ideas from things like rock and funk also. But definitely, I think it's come to mean... I don't know how this fits into your genre definition, Alan, but it's come to mean lots of notes. <laughs> yes, that that is true. That is probably a uh, a universal thread through all that. Yeah, piggybacking on what Rob said, when I think of fusion, I think of chord patterns that are not compelling. I know we joked there was a Nena Cherry song where the chord pattern just it was just notes. And it didn't really feel like anything. I feel like you get that a lot. And that is just an excuse so that the soloists can be challenged to try to fit something into this really bizarre chord pattern that's by no means 
a 12 bar blues or something pentatonic that we all associate with blues and rock and roll. It, it, to me, it almost feels like it's, it's their, their palette for trying to challenge themselves. Yeah. And that's, that's actually going to be one of my central complaints. And it is, I thought Alan, you were going to say jazz fusion. The genre is the spinach of your musical diet, <laughs> which I could more easily agree with. I think you could extend the comparison out to, I think writ large to the genre. But my main complaint is going to be they sacrifice any level of accessibility, not any level, but they always go for more complex. Damn close. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. More complex and more unexpected. These are the main driving aspects of the the recording and the the writing. Yeah, I would agree with that. I think these guys are, are, or were really playing. I don't want to say they're playing for themselves because this group actually, when you, when you compare them to, you know, traditional jazz these guys were actually getting pretty decent crowds and were and were known for a pretty electrifying live show but when you listen to albums like this i think it's clear that they were playing to your point to to challenge themselves to to push new boundaries to keep themselves creatively interested so yeah i think that all checks out it i think it's an interesting idea too that uh, me personally i I am at a level musically, right, that obviously pales in comparison to these guys. So I, I can't even fathom the concept of becoming so good at my instrument that I'm bored and I need to uh, play more notes or go in this direction in order because I'm musically bored. Like I, I saw some Steve, it might have been Steve Vai or Jeff Beck interview. I going to say Steve like, <laughs> you know, uh, Western tones bore me now. So he went and studied Hungarian tribal wedding music from the 800 ADs and stuff like, you know, the, this type of person who really takes it to another level. That's where I feel this, this or like, fusion you know, that thing comes King, into play. King Gizzard who's doing like the microtonal thing just to, right, you know. right. Like we've explored all there is within the Western sounds and scales. Let's go see what else is out there. Actually, I want to, it's a little tangential, but I want to challenge that assumption just a little bit of the level of complexity being so, no doubt, if we were to form a band right now and try to cover one of these tunes, we'd be challenged with it. I'm not denying that. I think we could do that like minute percussion uh, <laughs> breakdown, which is not on our list. It's about, but... <laughs> about a 30 second clip in one of these songs. I think we could pull it off. But is that really the motivation behind it? I, I guess I would. I found myself wondering, when's the last time you, any one of you, have really been challenged by a piece of music do we just never put ourselves like even the music we're writing or the bands we're in the, the the challenge is not usually about the technical aspect of the music there are other challenges in there and and i think that's just a purposeful decision so i just i just wonder if one of the thrusts of music like this is to set yourself up for just that kind of challenge i think that's a fair point i think there's some elements of that i mean we'll explore it i think specifically on songs like teen town and palladium later but like i also can't help but wonder like the degree to which their musicianship is high enough that this is just this is just language to them they're just speaking to each other right and that it doesn't it doesn't require the same type of i agree rob like you or i could play birdland right in a band right but i think it would it would take a lot more out of me than i think it does you know, these guys. 
Okay, fair enough. And I, I mean, I wasn't trying to aggrandize. Uh, I was yeah, kind of yeah, trying to yeah, trying yeah. to not self-deprecate all of us as yeah, musicians. Yeah, I know what you mean. Oh, right, right. Yeah. Well, I think the some of this sort of leads to how this genre, if that's what you want to call it, kind of came to be. This whole fusion idea, because these are these are jazz players. Like, make no mistake about it. the 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 guys who started this group. So, to kind of walk back a little bit, the in towards like the late 60s i think is really when fusion became a, a thing really and and i think a lot of people associate it with the time when really jazz was was starting to to die frankly the the consensus was that jazz was dying around that time you know coltrane died in 67 and jazz players were actually getting more into rock music so you know around that time miles davis was actually listening to a lot of jimi hendrix james brown sly and the family stone groups like that but he was still playing with the best players, right? So he's still playing with guys like John McLaughlin, Chick Corea, Herbie Hancock. And around this time, they were really like forging this new sound that made use of electronic instruments, moving away from, you know, a lot of the, the purely acoustic driven sort of traditional jazz music and pulling in elements of, of rock, of jazz, and even like world music and kind of forging this new sound. And I think a lot of folks, you know, kind of trace this stuff back to not that this was the first incarnation of fusion, but the, the 1969 album bitches brew, you know, which I know, you know, a few of us kind of got, got into back in the day, but this is the album that sort of propelled this kind of music into the, the mainstream jazz, if you want to call it that. And, you know, the guys playing on this album, I think I mentioned a few of them, but you know, you're talking like Herbie Hancock, you know, Jack DeJohnette. I mean, these were like traditional jazz players. Two of these guys who played on Bitches Brew and who who played with Miles Davis were were Joe Zavinol and Wayne Shorter, who these were the two guys who essentially started Weather Report. They the, the, the band the first guy's the keyboard player, right? The first guy's a keyboard player and Right, okay. <laughs> I encourage you to look this guy up. He if you can find a picture of him from like the eighties or like, you know, maybe early eighties, he looks like a combination of like Gallagher and David Crosby. <laughs> like he, he is a character and, and he's apparently super uh, tight and, you know, runs, it runs a tight ship. Right. And so I think him and, and Wayne Shorter, who was a, a, a sax player for, um, for Miles Davis and, and Art Blakey and others, these were the two guys who said, "Hey, we want to we want to kind of break off. We've been sidemen for a while. We want to do our own thing and start and start Weather Report." And they've had kind of a Steely Dan thing going on, where you know essentially you've got these two guys who were steering the ship with a rotating cast of various musicians along the way. By the time they got to this album in 1977, they had brought in Jaco Pastorius, and he really like took their sound from super experimental which to to not call this experimental i think is still kind of insane but by the time jocko comes in you know he brought in this insane bass forward you know but also a composer's kind of mindset to uh, and, and you know really like a studio mindset into taking the sound and and really like transforming it that's sort of how this music came to pass and i think there are there are many elements that I appreciate about this music. I don't think you can listen to it and not feel that these are 
top-notch, top-shelf musicians. But man, some of it is is tough to listen to. Am, am I wrong? Well, the the write-up for why, uh, so in the, the 1001 list, it was noted on this album that it was jazz fusion that you could just listen to and bop your head to versus prior to this, you were sitting on your couch with a glass of wine, staring at a blank wall and just listening and letting it confuse your brain. I didn't know that this was as, I guess, friendly as they they were pitching it. You know, like there are definitely some grooves in here. I definitely bopped my head a bit, but there were moments in here where I was just kind of, yeah, compared to what, right? I, I think yeah. so. I think the history is important. Let me let me comment on how we got here because I do think, and I think a lot of people think of Miles Davis as being a key progenitor of this genre. And you talk about Wayne Shorter. Wayne Shorter was a part of the so-called second great quintet of Miles Davis's, the one with Herbie Hancock and Tony Williams. The first quintet had being with John Coltrane. And when that was winding down, you had two, they were more of a traditional jazz quintet in the 60s, toured extensively. And when that was winding down, you mentioned that jazz was dying. I mean, I think really what was happening was popular culture. The group of music listeners and music purchasers was shifting over to rock and roll as people like Jimi Hendrix, the 60s, you know, all the big groups were starting to come into prominence. A lot of the people who were buying records shifted away from jazz being the most popular genre of music for people to go and buy and for cool hip people to be into. And that started shifting into rock and roll and soul and some other genres like that. And I think Miles Davis kind of had awareness of that. So as that quintet was breaking up, he was thinking, I need to do something new. He's a constant reinventor, right? And so he gets into the studio and he's, he's always a guy who's just trying to have a steady stream of new musicians come in and inspire him and uh, he brought in the keyboard player. One of the anecdotes I heard about the keyboard player, the Austrian guy, I can't, I can't think of his name right now. Uh, Joe Zavinol? Yes, him. I heard that he was one of the only people who claimed to not at all be intimidated at all by being invited into the studio with Miles Davis. Like everyone else who walked into the studio with Miles Davis because he was this icon, but sure. like really freaked out by it. Even guys like John McLaughlin, who's you know clearly a total beast, admitted to being very intimidated to getting invited to the studio session or to jam with the band. But this Zawinol guy was just like, he should be impressed to be playing with me. Like whatever. I'm so I'm so glad you mentioned that because one of the cool quotes I came across was you, you know to your point, someone was asking him like, hey, what does it feel like to have played with Miles Davis? And he's like, I don't know. Ask him what it felt like to play with me. <laughs> <laughs> which i mean he's, he's a confident man yeah jeez that's awesome that's what that mustache gives you yeah. <laughs> <laughs> is that all it takes because i'm i'm only a few <laughs> a few shaves away but well i and i think you're you're right i mean that, i think that confidence you when you are at this level and you are trying to forge entirely new music you kind of need that and i think what was interesting about this album is so you know, there were a few bass players that had come and gone by the time, you know, Jocko came into the mix who were a little bit more deferential that were, you know, more interested in being like a sideman. that by the time Jocko came around, you talk about confident. He used to literally introduce himself to people as the best bass player in the world. He would say, I'm Jocko Pistorius Oof. and I'm the best bass player in the world. Bear in mind, he was only 21 years old when he was doing this. I have a confession to make, which is that I've been a musician and talking about music like this. And even I've listened to this record before back in college. 
So I've heard the name Jaco Pistorius many times. But in my head, I guess I'd never seen a picture of him or really dug deep into what his background was. I had been thinking he was this like European, mysterious dude. He's got a foreign sounding name. It turns out he's basically Florida man. It's like a beach bum. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> he's definitely Florida man. He's he he was a a character. And funny enough, he was from he was born in Philadelphia, and then his family moved or like Norristown, sort of like suburbs of, of Philly. Really? That's why he always wears that Phillies hat. I remember getting into him oh, and being like, "What is?" Okay, expecting the same thing, Rob. Being like, "What? How does this guy come across? Like, did he just find this in a Goodwill in like, you know, Switzerland <laughs> or something? Like, what? How, what's going on here?" But yeah, so super confident player, and one of the things that uh, you know, apparently there was a lot of like tension when they finally got to this point in their career because. You know, Jocko also wouldn't back down from from Zavanol, and, and there was you know I, I came across a quote where you know somebody who had played in Weather Report said referred to them as as two cobras in a small room who just had to figure out a way to coexist, and so I think it it drove a lot of the the kind of madness I think that's on this album in in, in a strange way. All right, let's uh, let's get into some of the the music here. Let let's. Pick back up on on that song Birdland and give that a little bit of a of a spin here. fun with this for a second no this is no fun, no fun? there's <laughs> no fun well, are you gonna talk I mean, about how I this sounds like a? I don't know what i want to dive into first that like this is th- i mean the first 20 seconds of this song is like the most uninteresting moments of sound you'll ever hear it's also like oddly like the twin peaks intro or something like you're ready for the twin peaks theme song also it will make way into like a sort of 1980s like uh perfect strangers like exactly sound. yeah that's right? what i was thinking yes <laughs> so it's got it's totally. got strong 70s variety show vibes it's it's, yeah. it's game show or sitcom like that's all i mean yes. the first time i heard the song it's all i could think about yeah, yeah. I, I get like early 80s sitcom yeah well they were ahead of their time then just just play it just play any any spot in the middle of the song and just picture ricardo montalban like coming on stage with a thumbs up you know <laughs> Yeah, like that freeze frame with his name. Like yeah, right. <laughs> I, my biggest complaint, and it comes into play right here. And I know this is the hit. This is the one that became sort of a jazz standard. But I can't 
get past the tone. The tones on this album are freaking terrible. They have not aged well. Let me put it that way. I, I mean totally agree tones? with that. Yeah, the, synth, the well, the synth, tones? yeah. But everything about it, for you're talking about the bass tone even, is like, it's so tinny compared to, you're talking about a the bass player is such a big force in this band. I know he only plays above the seventh fret or whatever. <laughs> I don't know, man. I just don't think it aged very well. It sounds, even though it was recorded in the 70s, so, okay, here's here's a little paradox, right? I think normally we compliment records for being forward thinking. This is, I think this was forward thinking. And, but and the problem is that time warped us into the 80s, which sucks. It's <laughs> <laughs> pretty rough. This is forward thinking for 1977 or whatever. Well, it didn't help that this was really when synthesizers were accessible and available. You know, it was sort of right around that time. And so I think they were definitely taking some liberties there. And Zavanol talked about how once the synth came out, that was that allowed him to create more like orchestral sounds without having all these, you know, string players and things like that. And so he definitely was a little heavy handed with it. And it's it's cheese like it is cheese to the max. Well, I mean, this is an area, though, where I would also sort of like blame Ron Malo, the engineer, a little. I mean, again, very cutting edge, doesn't have as much experience mixing synthesizers, but like you can feel uh, Zawinol. That's how you say his last name. You can feel, you can basically feel him like leaning over the engineer being like, turn the synthesizers up. You know, (laughs) like the keyboards aren't loud enough. (laughs) Like, there's there's sometimes when it's like, why is this so loud? (laughs) Like, I can hear it just fine. (laughs) Yeah, I I think that this is a general comment on the record. I think the content is actually pretty cool. I like the writing in in a lot of places, but the tones are sort of the opposite of what I've come to know as hip, and they get in the way of my enjoyment, certainly. Yeah, that's a fair point. I think, Rob, to your point about the bass, I agree that the bass tone, it, there was really nothing else like it. I, I mean, certainly at that point, nobody had played bass like this ever. I remember seeing an interview with Herbie Hancock where he was shocked that it was one person playing a bass, like that it wasn't some other instrument or something like that. And, and so his background actually, or, or the way that he approached playing bass was that you're not just in the pocket that you're not just a you're there to to lay the foundation that it's it could be an integral part of driving the melody and so he was always a big proponent in, in learning like the entire head or the entire melody of of a jazz song on bass but he also you know famously ripped the frets out of his jazz bass and kind of pioneered the fretless bass he, you know, was kind of pioneered playing with with chorus effects and, and a lot of things like that that kind of changed the paradigm. And, you know, I, I don't know that he changed it in a good way in the sense that, like, I personally don't need the bass player to be super virtuoso, but it's something that hadn't been done. And I and I do think is is kind of noteworthy. I have a question about this song, this like pitch Thing. I thought it was like a guitar. It's like a pinch harmonica or whatever. No, it's the bass. Left. That's the bass. Yeah, I did. Yeah. I thought it was a guitar too. Totally. I watched 100%. that live video, and it's him playing, sliding up the fretless. Yeah, yeah, and just hitting the octaves. And like Phil, you've you've done the pinch yeah, harmonica totally, totally. pick before, right? Yeah. yeah. So he's doing the same thing, just deadening it yeah, right yeah. above you know Wherever. his thumb. Yeah, yeah, yeah. He's, okay, but but this is an this is an honest question to his bass playing. Well, actually, I have I have two questions. One is where does Stanley Clark fit in this lineage of bass players? I know they have a little bit of a different style. 
that return to forever record or some of them were definitely years before this. Right. And he's very virtuistic as well. Maybe a little bit different style. I want to hear you comment on that, Alan. And two is the negative way to say what he's doing is playing bass like a guitar player. So I would just honest question, <laughs> right, which, right. which we've all said and in a derogatory way about people's playing in the past. I guarantee it. Everyone on this call has said that at some point and meant it. So I need you to tell me why it's different. Okay. So two things. I'll address the second point first. I actually don't think he plays like a guitar. I think he plays like a like a horn, like a saxophone. I, I think that in his mind, he is not replicating, but he he views his he views the bass as his melody machine in a way that nobody really had prior to that point. And frankly, the people that do it now they're they're great players, but it's just totally unlistenable music. So, I think that I, I do you, take do some you issue wanna, with a guitar player. Do you want to quickly part. throw a modern player under the bus? Yeah, like like the Victor Wooten types, guys like yeah, that. Okay, you know, who you. are like super <laughs> sick, but their music is frankly terrible. To I just to. wanted to get you yeah. on record trashing someone. You know, There's also this guy Tom who, that we know who man like. <laughs> Overrated. Oh, just plays way too much, and you know, this is related. But I went to a Thundercat show a couple of years ago, right before the pandemic, in fact, and I thought I was going to have a seizure from listening to this guy. It was very intense. Well, that's you know, it does go back to the idea. That's why there aren't many people that have done this. I don't know that bass needs to break a ton of ground anymore. Like I think it just is what it is, and it's a it's a foundational instrument. The piece about Stanley Clark, Stanley Clark was of that era, you know, like the return to forever. I don't know if he played with Mahavishnu, you know, or or where he fit into there. He was, so there's definitely the virtuoso piece. I think where Jocko really like transformed bass from a, a different level than Stanley Clark is the aspect of bass as like a lead line, right? So if you listen to Birdland, I hear the bass almost as much as I hear the sax, right? He's he's bringing it to the the fore. He's also composing some of these songs. So if you you know we'll talk about Teen Town in a minute, but it, I think it's just like a next level of using his instrument in a way, the fretless, the chorus, you know, the chorus effect, the the sounds that he was able to make from the bass like if you really listen closely, they, it just sounds way different. I'm not saying he's better or worse than Stanley Clark, but I, I yeah. do think there's there's a difference like stylistically there. Well, and you bring up an important contextual element that's worth remarking on. A remark I'm about to make is that you know instruments go through their own. There's an evolution for every single instrument, and the electric bass was still pretty young instrument at this point, right? Especially from the perspective of jazz players, but even the electric guitar hasn't been around that long. So innovations had to be made. And at some point, it's possible those innovations will stop. I, I heard this anecdote the other day that this made me think of, which is that I want, I believe it was Beethoven really hated the piano. I can't remember if it was Beethoven or Bach. One of those guys really actually disliked the piano, even though they're most associated with it and they preferred the harpsichord or some other instrument. But it, the reason that was given was because the pianos of their day they hadn't figured out the steel frame that made them stay in tune effectively and so the thing just would constantly go out of tune it was like impossible to manage and for that reason you get what i'm saying like the instrument hadn't gone through its evolutions yet Mm -hmm. to really be they could compose for it but like the actual day-to-day of living with it was 
Yeah, it's like a means to an end. It's like it's, it's how yeah. you can express your idea. Yeah. But it might not perform great, sound great. Yeah. Yeah. So I'm just saying I I'm saying that to say that I buy the fact that bass guitar had to go through a certain amount of evolution. And now that evolution may be. Maybe it's not completely done, but it's certainly a more in the long tail section of the evolution now. And, you know, there was a time where there was a lot of innovation happening. Totally. It's 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 not a transformation that needed to happen. I think it happened and showcased immense raw skill and, and just like monster bass playing. But it's certainly not a style that I aspire to emulate as a as a bass player. Like I feel much more in the like James Jamerson you know, Motown sort of school of things, but that's neither here nor there. This isn't like the base corner over here. And, you know, without Tom, <laughs> I feel a little bit cornered here, but yeah. So this is, you know, final thing about Birdland. Yeah, this is definitely their, the, the song they're most known for by far their most like commercially successful song, the most probably accessible song, you know, in terms of like catchiness and, and written like a, sort of pop song last thing too just sort of funny tidbit i didn't realize this that that this was named after birdland the the manhattan jazz club so you know wasn't uh, wasn't aware of that which itself was named after charlie parker ah, there you go who was known as bird hey uh, uh, last question i don't know if you have any more info on this one but i noticed in the credits there was jocko i believe playing something called amanda cello which i then looked up and it said it was you know, analogous how a mandolin is to a guitar, a mandocello is to a cello, but I couldn't actually pick out where this might have been. I think it's at the very end. It's if you were to jump to around five minutes and ten seconds, there's kind of a noodly thing that sounds like an electric guitar that I think is either a, a mic'd up or they put a pickup on a mandocello. I just never even heard of that instrument before, so I just thought that was cool. Nor had I. Yeah. I thought it was him playing bass again up at like the 99th fret. <laughs> <laughs> Maybe that's the next innovation is like a, a you know, right. more frets. The, Chap- <laughs> the Chapman's Chapman Stick version 2.0. Well, yeah. well, they say nobody makes money beyond the fifth fret on bass, so <laughs> who knows if that's, <laughs> that's Not sure if that's viable. That's great. Um, Okay, so let's uh, let's move on to the the next tune, which Rob cleverly alluded to uh, a moment ago, which is called "A Remark You Made."
so I'm just going to jump in here and give my thoughts first because I think I texted you guys earlier in the week, like, you know, I'll, I'll just be sitting here listening to great musicians make bad music. This is the song I was, <laughs> was referring to specifically. And it <laughs> also had, yeah. this had that BG song effect where like two, I was out two seconds in, like I was just like, I <laughs> cannot do yeah, this. Yeah, yeah. I, I had already formed my opinion. There were parts of it that if you could get through the first few minutes there, I thought there was a little bit of payoff, but and this song was painful. Yeah, this was their romantic song, but it was so cheesed Oof. out that it was hard so to... So Kenny G. So Kenny G. Kenny G. Well, okay, so let's. since you mentioned Kenny G, <laughs> I think what you're really saying is soprano sax, which I'm pretty sure the soprano sax is actually not on this. So that was one of my compliments to the song, which is thank you, Wayne Shorter, for not playing soprano sax. That's the... That's the sax that looks like a clarinet, basically. It's not the <laughs> it could have been so much worse. <laughs> it's not the one you're thinking of, right? So I think he's playing a tenor sax on this. Maybe instead. he was time traveling and was trying to like prevent influence Kenny G right. from happening. <laughs> Call me a philistine, but the soprano sax sucks. It's tonally <laughs> it terrible. It's just I that doesn't work. I'm There's some bad instruments out there. Yeah, I'll give you that one. <laughs> It's an interesting. It's an interesting point, Rob, because I I feel like if you're gonna play a soprano sax, why are you not just playing a clarinet, right? I think like, whereas like I actually prefer. I don't like a clarinet to be clear, but I mean like why do these both exist? Yeah, they must be played differently. I don't, I don't know the subtleties yeah, of the embouchure or whatever it's called with your mouth. <laughs> I'm sure one of our tens of thousands of listeners. I, <laughs> right, please let us know. Please let us know the difference between all these instruments. But so because there was no soprano sax, I did take note that Wayne Shorter sounds sounds great. You know, sim- frankly, similar to how his tracking sounds on Asia, the Steely Dan album, which we all love. The problem is that the tones all around him just undercut every element of humanity or interest <laughs> that I can get. Like... <laughs> Nothing sounds warm, you know? It doesn't even sound like there's human beings behind it sometimes. It's AI. (laughs) So to me, on this track, he was the lone... He could have... You get what I'm saying? You could have taken that track and put it on something else, and I think I would have been okay with it, but... Adam, I'm glad you said AI, because my personal favorite part of this song, Rob's favorite part, it seems, is the use of tenor sax, comes at about 4 minutes and 30 seconds, where there okay. is a synthesizer solo that sounds like like it's like a robot love poem. Yes. <laughs> it's just mashing keys at that point. Right. Let's drop that in here.
I think the really great thing about this song, though, is that it's six minutes and 51 seconds. Oh, my God. <laughs> oh, my God. It's so hard to get through. Yeah, I almost, like, regretted putting this on the on the playlist just because I knew we'd have to listen to it again in preparation, and I felt like that was a <laughs> subtle form of torture. I actually did appreciate the Johnny Five solo, though. I know it sounds <laughs> like it's like an arpeggiator that somebody poured Coca Cola on, and it's just going crazy. Uh, I actually liked it at the end there. That was kind of the one redeeming quality near like three quarters of the way through the song. Didn't quite get me to the end, but it was like a little mm-hmm. carrot along the way. It gives me a little bit of like a again, like it, it is forward looking, and that like it also when it starts, I get like a bit of like a somewhere out there vibe. Is that like a Lionel Richie song or a Linda Ronstadt song? It's like a duet, you know, with Fievel. And there's just something about those, the, the synths in the beginning. It's like a Steven Spielberg movie from the 80s with a cartoon. Oh, voice. somewhere out there beneath the um, American tale. That's the Yes, one. Fievel, yeah. yes. All right, so let's move on to the song Teen Town. drum from hell <laughs> well Jocko was actually playing drums on this track which I didn't yes. realize until semi recently but it kind of makes sense if you're gonna write a song like this so he you know he really composed this entire song you better at least know where to drop the the drums in because it's this song's become like a bassist anthem you know, so to speak, I think we were talking about that earlier this week. In fact, my I remember an old uh, bass instructor I had was really excited one time I showed up to you know to to a session and he's like, "Hey man, I just learned Teen Town like note for note over the past like month." And this is a guy who's like playing professionally, and to him it was like this conquest. But I don't know, it feels a little bit like just an excuse to to shred, you know, frankly to noodle. Yeah, yeah. So I thought this was the hippest song melodically speaking. I thought this still sounded kind of modern and the most interesting. Now, it still has the same problems that I mentioned on the other tunes, which is soprano sax is terrible. Sorry, nerds. <laughs> and the other tones are pretty bad. By the way, I the looked up. The other tones I, are bad. The weird synth horn split thing is a little weird, like the opening line. Yes. You mean when the keyboard comes in and just hits a really <laughs> crunk <laughs> note? <laughs> Oh, yeah, the, yeah, the head is cool. I think it's I think the head still sounds kind of hip and cool. 
But I just think I think I want all these songs to be reimagined by a band with different instruments and different microphones on those instruments. You know, that's that's how I feel. But I, I credit where credit's due. It's tight. It's under three minutes. It gets in. Yeah. It gets out. It's weird, but but it right. Right. That's a good. Yeah, call. it is probably aside from Birdland, probably the most like enduring song from from this album, or at least the one that, you know, seems to to still resonate. Yeah, much more so than the others, for sure. You mentioned in the text thread, because fans may not, I wouldn't have put this together, that the Wolfpack song Dean Town is a reference to this. The one where they're playing it at Madison Square Garden and the crowd is singing along to the bass line. It's amazing. I've it's never pretty, heard before it's in my life. It's pretty spectacular. Yeah. yeah. And it's a quick melody, too. Joe Dart was very unabashedly like into to Jocko, although I think I also mentioned this I didn't know this, but the so Woody Goss, who's one of the keyboard players for Wolfpack, he actually composed the song as a nod to this. So I think the idea was that Joe Dart would would play it. So Joe didn't actually write it, but I mean, he executes the fuck out of it, and it's now like an it's the most iconic like modern bassline, if you can even call it a bassline that's out there. Right. But it's, I just that just jumped out to me when I heard that recording. I was like, I've never heard the crowd do this ever. Oh, definitely not. <laughs> It's quite remarkable. Is it a bit of a fusion trope in other bands that came after this to do the thing that this song does, which is what I'll call like the backing chord pattern is this ambiguous kind of chorusy guitar, mm, maybe I a synth that's, that's just fading like just in. Over top. Yeah, but but it, like it fades in with either a volume pedal, and it's so ambiguous that there are no wrong notes. And I bet you, if you looked at the chords, they're probably pretty big, right? They're probably right, crazy, yeah. right? Like, yeah. But I feel like you could get the same effect if you just let your cat lay on the piano and like bring the volume <laughs> up and then move it. it. It doesn't have the chords are so complex. I don't have a center of tone, right? And maybe that's the point. Yeah, yeah, totally. But well, like they don't even, but they don't even come off like that because they're not hitting hard one after another, right? They're just yeah. laid out. Yeah. But I feel like not just on this song. Like I feel like I've heard Pat Metheny do this. Sure. I feel like I've heard Tribal Tech with Gary Willis do this. It's I, like I don't know if he invented this kind of show offy platform pad. where it's like, all right, yeah, let's just do a weird pad with like a diminished ninth, augmented eighteenth, or whatever, and just like fade in on that, and then I'll just noodle. I, I don't know if this is the first time that that, that kind of came about. <laughs> <laughs> well, we need someone to blame, so we'll just, uh, yeah. we'll just throw them all we'll, we'll, here. We'll need to fact check that. Yeah, right. Um, yeah, I don't know. I, I, this is, I think this is a cool song, but I, I do feel like, it, 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 to me, it felt like it just like petered out. And then it just sort of comes back with a, okay, shit, I guess we have to finish this somehow. And it comes back with a, bah! But I don't know. That that right. sounded a little a little abrupt to me. A little hackneyed. Right. Yeah. You know. Uh guys. Which for a three minute song to to have uncertainty as to how it's gonna end. It's a little weird, but I would have loved it if they had ended it with dun 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 Like they would, <laughs> would have been a lot better. Oh, awesome. Cool. Okay, let's move on to the next track, which is called the Palladium.
So for an instrumental band, I feel like one of the most fun parts would be naming the songs. And I just, I don't sense a lot of joy in this, these names. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I agree. I agree. There's just, yeah, there's, there's so much meat left on the bone, right? Yeah. Uh, this one kind of slaps, has some Latin feel. I liked it all right. Good use of, uh, this is a little musical nerddom for you, but good use of the Charleston rhythm. The kind of, the one that hits on the one and then on the two and. Okay, I don't think I was familiar with that, as as a, as a term. As a term, yeah, it's an, it's a from I think it's from a James P. Johnson song, like so it's super old. I thought this this grooved like really hard. This was the the song where I kind of wanted a little bit more of this. Like this actually reminded me more of you know I know I know we all had our like Headhunters phase back in the day, and which also gets like super weird. But but there's just that groove that you can kind of anchor to a little bit that just makes you bob your head a little bit i thought this one grooved super hard i thought like the bass on this it's a pretty simple bass line which you know i i definitely appreciate that i also felt like this you know we've probably heard a lot of music that sounds like this at this point but i think it was pretty unique for that time period where there's really like this afro-cuban rhythm that still sounds like there's elements of acoustic jazz and this new school, like electronic jazz. So, you know, I don't think it's any type of like groundbreaking song, like at large, but I do think it was a little bit unique for that time period. And I thought it like grooved pretty hard, honestly. Yeah. I think if I had to, if I had to pick this, probably my favorite tune. Oh, I didn't love any of the tunes. I have to say this, this one, although you said groove and I think of groove as being, associated with the word relaxing this kept me on edge the entire time which you could argue the entire album did but this sounded like a coked out casino to me <laughs> well when i think of groove like i think of like your bob in your head right just so that doon, 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 like to me that's that's groove even if you know it's not like super laid back or super chill that's at least that's my interpretation I thought this was a very hip tune. I think this was the one I'd heard this record many times when I was younger. And this was the one that definitely stood out as like, wow, oh man, this song's really cool. R- Rob, I think you sort of alluded to it that this is maybe a little more contemporary, right? To what was hip in, you know, what, 1974 when this came out? When did this come out again, Alan? 77. 77. Yeah, so... You know, I think this sounds more like 1977, whereas a lot of the record sounds like 1983, unfortunately. So that, yeah, that's actually, we've been dancing around it, or perhaps we've been dancing around it, maybe we haven't, listeners, is our taste is very centered on the 70s. The stuff that sound, if the stuff that is sounding more like it's grounded in the 70s style, the 70s tones, you even referenced Headhunters, which I think is, predates this by a few years which I think of as a great album. I haven't listened to it all the way through in a while. Versus the 80s. So it is just a taste thing. I think that 80s production and 80s tones weigh this down, unfortunately. And, and, and it seems unfair because, like I said before, it does imply that they were forward-looking. It just bites them mm-hmm. in the ass in this case. <laughs> in this particular case, yeah. Because right. they're looking forward into a crappy time. <laughs> Crap, crappy palette of sounds. Right, like I don't think they're sitting there being like, "Man, this sounds okay now, but man, this is gonna sound really fucking horrible in like forty <laughs> years, <laughs> or even twenty years at that point." My only note on this song was that I I feel like they were sitting in the studio, and Emerson Lake and Palmer walked past like the the booth 
and they grab them and are like, can you help us record the first four seconds of this song and that's it? <laughs> this sounded like, those first four seconds sounded like they could be any spot on that album, Tarkus. <laughs> it's just like this loud, aggressive, weird thing. So, Yeah, got to throw it against the wall, man. See what happens. <laughs> yeah, again, another like a w- abrupt ending. I-, I-, I don't know if these songs just, you know, I know that, you know, going back to some of the jazz stuff we've talked about, before where maybe it wasn't intended to be recorded necessarily like very much a live medium i feel like some of these songs they just it's very it seems very arbitrary as to when they decide to wrap it up and it it just (laughs) feels very odd when it's over well they did do yeah i know that's a good point a lot of these were done live these are still done live in the way that jazz records right there's not a lot of overdubs or maybe there's no overdubs Mm -hmm. here and then I, i feel like i also read something that a lot of these were take one or two, you know, they didn't necessarily labor over these tunes. No, not at all. And I think they still went for that like live feel while they were playing, but also the, they self-produced, right? So I think they had people like doing mixing and engineering, but like if, if you look at the production credits for this album, it is sort of the triumvirate, you know, of, of Zavanal, Wayne Shorter and, and Jocko on this. And so Hmm. they, you know, they may not have, Let's talk about the take one philosophy just for one second, because I think there is a distinction that's important between take one on rock records, or at least the the take one that I've come to know. If you say take one and you're referring to something that I did, the implication is that I showed up at the studio prepared to play the song and it came out that way. You know what I mean? We played it accurately and then I said that was good. But I think take one in jazz is something that's even earlier in the evolutionary process of the song. Meaning that, to your point about when are they going to end the song, How what is the arrangement of the song, how long does it go on, what's the format, I think that in these situations, take one is, yeah, we don't really know what's going to happen. Like, here's the chart, here's the idea. It's like take one of a scene from Curb Your Enthusiasm. Here's the gist of what's going to happen, but we don't actually know what's going to happen. Yeah, I think that's fair. I think they, it, you know, it, it it really depends on what composed means, right? Because... You know, when you hear things like, you know, for Teen Town, for example, it's it's composed by Jocko. He does play all the all the instruments on it. You know, so he obviously has this idea of what he wants it to sound like. But for some of these other songs, yeah, to your point, it's like, what does composed mean? Does it mean that you have the melody and like the skeleton of the changes mapped out and everyone else just kind of f- feels out where they think things go? Or, you know, are people coming in with sort of note note for note you know, expectations yeah it's it's a good question i think it has to be that first one in in most cases because the all anyone talks about in these jazz album reviews is they talk about the interplay i think everything is about oh i played this note so now you respond with this note i played this chord so now you have to be listening come back with your version of that thing or your call and response you know your response to my call so to speak so which I think that actually makes sense because something else I came across in, you know, learning about this album this week was that, you know, because that of that tension between Jocko and Zavanal, they, they would, Zavanal would actually try to wait until Jocko wasn't playing, which was not very often as, as you can tell. Yeah. <laughs> and he would try to fill that space as if they were really like in like some kind of boxing match <laughs> with each other. And so I do think that comes across on this record of like, 
you know, is this some kind of like pissing contest or, or what's happening? But they it definitely seems like they were fighting for real estate a little bit. But that that interplay does feel like it was there, if, if you want to call it that. Yeah, interesting. And I have one more note on this song, which is just to clarify that my complaint about the tones on this record weren't just about the synth. They're mainly about the synth. But there is a timestamp I marked that starts starts at around 310. And then something, it could be a woodblock or it could just be a guy rattling a drumstick around in a coffee can. I'm, I'm not really <laughs> sure what it is, but it's not good. I hear it in the left. It's like pan left. Yeah, let's drop that in because that's not something I picked up on, but you know, I, I'm not the least bit surprised. Rob, that sounds like a funny idea where, like, you have to overdub Cowbell for a song, but you can't hear the song. You know? They give, like, they give you the click. Maybe right. they give you the click. Right? But they don't know, you don't know anything about the song. Challenge. Uh, awesome. All right, let's move on to the last song that we have kind of scoped for this, this album, which is, I think it's pronounced Havona. So they caught Emerson, Lake, and Palmer coming back from lunch, and they got them into the studio again for the first eight seconds of this one as well. Uh, dude, the synth to open this song. Well, first of all, this is this is another Jocko composition. Somehow, I don't know. I, I think it's kind of a cool tune. I think it does have some some movement and some interesting aspects and some and some cool movement. But the the synth that opens it up is so cringy. Like I just can't it's really hard to like suspend my disbelief and just, you know, set that aside and get past it and feel the rest of it. Because I just think it, it just sounds, it just sounds dated. It sounds just cringy, frankly. Yeah. Comp- compositionally, I thought this was a fun tune, but yeah, the tones weighed it down again, especially that synth tone. I liked what I noted here was that the drums had a little more rock and roll to them. And that, you know, supposedly, I think you said this, Alan, supposedly some of the impetus for the band for, from them breaking away from Miles Davis was to try to put a little more rock and roll into jazz fusion, which is a little surprising when you listen to most of this record. But this one had a little more rock and roll to it. Also, at some point in the song, I didn't timestamp it, you get something that sounds at least closer to a regular, a real sounding piano, which was a nice change. <laughs> yeah, there's always a place for the for the classics you know um what was interesting though percussion wise so you mentioned like the the drums though like there definitely was by this point they had brought in you know Jocko actually advocated to bring in this guy Alex Acuna who was a you know sort of Latin drummer this does sound like the one tune where he 
you know, played a little bit more like straight ahead, you know, in that rock vein. So yeah, that's that's a that's a good observation. I think his drums in general on the record are pretty pretty hip, like pretty cooking. Although I come to find that it, you know, at least one of the tunes is Jaco. So shows. Well, there's also a percussionist too. So I mean, they're really like they they, they can add a, a lot more onto shit. We've gone this whole time. We haven't talked about the name of the band or the album cover, but both of which are weighing this project down quite a bit, I would say. <laughs> you know, I think Tom commented last week when we announced the record that this was one of the most boring things to name your band after, but I'm just picturing the pitch from the designer for this album cover. Right, hey, guys, guys, I got I got an idea for you. Listen, I know you're called, I know you're called Weather Report. Hear me out. Right. You're called Weather Report, right? Am I right? Is that the mm-hmm. name? Yep. Weather okay. Report. All the I'm way. I'm thinking of going direct at it. I'm thinking storms. All right. Storms over a city. Yes. Yes. I'm thinking Give me more. I'm yes. thinking falling leaves. Okay. Strong storms associated yep. with weather. Weather. Okay. And the coup yeah. de gras. Yeah. A fedora. <laughs> <laughs> oh, because those blow off in a storm. <laughs> oh, Wait, but, I get but it. But Rob, the fedora appears to also be a volcano. I thought that was hair of a, like a long dude's hair coming out of the fedora. No, 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 no. Look at the top, the smoke. Oh, I feel No, I thought it was just functioning as the cloud that was creating the what. Anyway, it makes no sense. Just. <laughs> the door is like shielding the town, but also shooting lightning. It's and there's a leaf in the corner. <laughs> My only other note on this tune is there's a moment at the two minute and eighteen second mark where everyone is soloing. Everyone, <laughs> the drums are going crazy. Jocko's going nuts. The horn is going nuts. It's uh, my brain exploded. It's just overboard. And it was just funny because, Rob, you were saying like, oh, well, first take live, you know, the battle between forces of, of finding the, the empty space. There was no empty space. It was just right. everyone is in their own little box just shredding. And it didn't it didn't work out too well. Because well. that, that is playing against one of the one of the core tenets of improvisation, which is question and response. If everyone's playing at once, there's it's all questions and responses <laughs> all at once, right? right? And that makes right. it hard for your ear to follow. And that is what fusion sounds like a lot of the times to my ear, I have to admit. Well, and, and then are you really listening at that point? I mean, I'm sure they are good enough. You know, Phil, you mentioned earlier, like, this is just sort of like speaking another language for these guys. And I did see a quote where, you know, Zavanal was talking about, what, why he enjoyed playing with Wayne Shorter so much and why they, you know, they were like really the two consistent members throughout this whole project. And he, he said something to the effect of like, yeah, we just play, like, we don't talk about it. We don't think about it. We don't like, you know, discuss it to, to all end. We just, we can just play. So they have that going on. But when you hear that kind of shit, it does make you wonder, like, are they even listening to each other? Like, if we all just started talking at once, like, that wouldn't really sound very good, I don't think. The Fusion Podcast. We all talk about our own album. <laughs> An hour straight. You have right. exactly 45 minutes. Right. Can't stop. Yeah. Okay. I think uh, that that brings us to the, uh, the the critical question here, which is, dear listeners, do you need to listen to heavy weather before you die. Phil, what say you? 
So I thought about this a lot in the context of like who's listening to the podcast, right? Like I think if you're a Kenny Chesney fan, <laughs> this is like a really easy pass, you know? So, uh, you know, and, and I'm I'm accepting the reality that that's most, you know, people who like music. But, you know, if you're a serious listener, like love it or hate it, like you might need to give this a spin, want to give this a spin. But I am actually going to say no. I think you can find better Jaco. I think you can find better Wayne Shorter. Um, it's definitely a really hip record. It's very cool. There's an important moment. Birdland is literally a standard. But I'm going to say no to Heavy Weather by Weather Very well. It's a no for me as well. And I'm going to sleep real easy with that one tonight. I think if you look up Inessential in the dictionary, you're going to get something like this <laughs> I, I listen this is not the kind of challenges that your ears need so i can think of a million better and more seminal jazz records are we talking about the beginning of fusion are we talking about the beginning of any of these players careers are we talking about a turning point maybe best case scenario this is jocko's debut to the world on in, in recorded form i'm not even sure we if we said that or not but I just don't think that justifies you having to listen to it. No, you're right. Just to kind of clarify there, like he he had released a solo album before that, before this one. And he had also done a Weather Report album prior to this. I think it was called Black Market. But yeah, I mean, in a sense, like this is this was his coming out his party in, in a sense. This is Adam. This is the first time I had ever gone through this album. The first time I'd ever actually listened to a Weather Report album end to end. It was hard. I didn't necessarily like it, but I'm glad I did it, and I think you should too. I think that this, uh, I think that this may have uh, outsized influence downstream on a lot of stuff that I actually like and appreciate now. So I'm gonna say yeah. Well, thanks for giving me the fuel to to boosh Phil and Rob here because <laughs> <laughs> teed that up nicely. Uh, I, I'm also gonna say yes, which might come as a surprise given that I feel like we generally spent more time shitting on the record than than otherwise but i think for me what it comes down to is if if i were building a curriculum for music appreciation and we're walking through you know all these different genres and trying to find a small handful of of kind of exemplars i i do think this would have to be on there and and there's I also part of my criteria for these things is are there other weather report albums on the list? And this is the only one. And I don't think this is their best album, but I I do think again, back to my sort of vegetable and <laughs> as lame as it was analogy, you know, these are great players and this is held up for better or worse as, you know, among the, the really the probably the top, three to five jazz fusion albums. And I think that is enough to spend the, you know, 40 minutes listening to this. This isn't something I'm going to put on again for a really long time, but I do think it's worth a listen. And because I'm the host and we're (laughs) two, two suck it. You're on the list. (laughs) He's drunk with power. Yeah. So congratulations. I went all you played with miles Davis, but this is your your shining moment here. So 
Dear listeners, what do you think? Did we get it right? Did we get it wrong? Would love to hear your thoughts. If Especially if you are a fusion aficionado, please let us know where we fucked up on this <laughs> in this conversation. Set us straight, but uh, you know, put put us on the path to uh, to righteousness. And if you send us a picture of yourself standing next to Amanda Cello, we will send you <laughs> one chop poster while wearing a fedora. <laughs> while. <laughs> All right. So I, I understand we have some some listener feedback. What, what do you got for us, Rob? Yeah. So listener Rick writes in, subject line, Tom is wrong. Uh, need I read on? What? <laughs> I mean, I, we all could have written that email. It's <laughs> <laughs> a good point. I don't I didn't actually. You just know, just stop. I, I, don't, I don't need to hear anything address. else. Right. No, he says, <laughs> he says, hey, guys, love the pod. As I was listening to the Belts Mashin episode, I noticed an error. Tom talked about a novel written by lead singer Stuart Murdoch of Bell and Sebastian. In fact, it's the other Stuart, Stuart David, who wrote that novel. Ah. It's called Peacock's Alibi, and trust me, you don't have to read it. <laughs> Take that, Tom. Get your shit straight. This is good. But also take that Peacock's Alibi. <laughs> Awesome. Well, thanks for that. Appreciate it. Yeah, keep keep the feedback coming. We, you know, we I think we recognize we are not uh, experts in in any of this, but but we do our best. So yeah, keep that coming. With that, I think the only thing left is to set our sights to next week and figure out with bated breath what how are we going to spend next week. Yeah, I got the albinator here. Let's go ahead and give this puppy a whirl. Drum roll, please. This week, we shall be listening to Bob Dylan's Bringing It All Back Home. Ooh, so more long songs that don't go anywhere. Awesome. Love it. Can't wait. I <laughs> hope to God you were on this podcast with me. Right. I don't know if I am or not. I feel like I avoid the ones that <laughs> Rob comes like armed to the teeth. <laughs> Hungry for battle. With facts. I'm not. I'm not going to stand with up facts and, 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 <laughs> and compelling arguments. How dare yeah, you? With your cogent <laughs> logic and well-researched reasoning. It's <laughs> the Ugh. first time we'll be tackling Bob Dylan, so that's exciting. Yeah, I mean, this is this is a classic, right? It's, it's a classic, but you know, I think Bob Dylan's a great example of someone who clearly has a strong place in the musical canon. He's a must-listen artist. Cert- I think everyone would agree to that easily, but also plenty to make fun of and complain about. So. Luckily, he has a catalog of, you know, 60 plus albums. So I'm sure some of them are clunkers. I'm sure they're all on the list, too. <laughs> <laughs> awesome. All right. Well, with that, I'm Alan. I'm Phil. I'm Rob. And I'm Adam. Boosh.